Hi, welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is Jeff Bucknam. I am here with uh, my friend Kendra Gerbrandt. This is a series of special podcasts that we're going to be doing over the next little while. I'm calling them nobodies, but not because the people I'm talking to are nobody, but that they're uh, everybody's got a story. And uh, sometimes the people you walk around in our church, you just don't know what they're dealing with or the kinds of issues they have had to deal with. And we are happily nobodies mm. in the world site, but somebody's in God. So Kendra is here. Hello. It's nice to be here. Yeah. It's great to have you. Kendra, Thanks. you are currently serving in Northview as what? As a pastoral intern. So that role started in September. Uh, myself, John Mulder and Sarah Friesen are all three immerse interns slash pastoral interns, meaning that we study here at Northview. We're doing our Masters of Divinity and then we also have a ministry role that we get to work at the church. So Sarah and I work in women's ministry, and it's been a lot of fun these last 10 months. So you you and Sarah are serving in the women's ministry. That's along right. with How much help do they need? Well, Jeff, we need, <laughs> we have a lot of women. It's I great. Got, okay. That's yeah, great. No. It is. I mean, we have a lot of studies, right? So we have two studies in Mission. We have two studies in Abbotsford. We have precepts in Abbotsford. Um, and then we do a, sometimes we do another discipleship group. So there's right. a lot of places to be and can't be there all the time. So it's great. You grew up at Northview. This is your home church. It is. Yeah. From like the, the very get go. Yeah. So my parents started coming in the early eighties when Northview was still meeting in the gym at MEI. And they actually came, they switched to Northview because their church was too big and they were looking for a smaller church to get plugged into. So that's how they came to Northview. And then I was born in 86. So grew up in the nursery through Kidstown. Vic was my children's pastor. Really? Vic yep. Schellenberg, Vic who's Schellenberg. currently our care pastor. Yep. Yeah. I dropped out of youth. Um, didn't like how big and loud it was wow. and the crazy game. So I, I'm a, you're a, youth, I'm you're a youth dropout. A youth yep. group dropout. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you do that yeah. all the way through high school? You didn't attend the youth ministry? Yeah. It oh, was wow. too big and chaotic. Yeah. That's not your cup of tea? Big and it's, chaotic? No, it's not. Not at all. No, okay. it makes me nervous. And yeah, so I don't like when that. You, you, where did you go to high school? I went to high school at Abbey Senior. Okay. Abbey Junior and then Abbey Senior. No, yeah. Like, you're not, you're, so you're not an MEI kid. I'm not. You're no. a secular yep. Abbotsford kid. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually interesting. Um, I think going to a secular school is actually super helpful for my faith growing up. Um, I had a lot of friends that ended up going to MEI and they'll say going to a Christian school is very helpful for their faith. Um, it helped them solidify some questions and issues that they had. But I think for me going to a secular school and having to be exposed to things that otherwise I would have been protected from or sheltered from, that that really helped me um, with my decision making and with my reliance on God and claiming Christian faith as my own, not just something my parents wanted for me. So, so you think, so you think it's a sin to send kids to pub, private school and homeschool then? No, cause that was great <laughs> means of God's providence in their life. But good. I'm thankful for the experience that I had at Abbey senior. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good for me. Mm-hmm. That's great. But you went on from there to university. When did you come to faith in Christ? Where's your, like, if you, if you tell someone your, the story about your spiritual journey, where do you, you, I'm assuming you start with, man, I grew up in a Christian home. Yeah. Or where would you where would you say that you you began your your Christian like your understanding of the Christian faith? Yeah, I think it started growing up 
with Christian parents and coming to church. And so I've always been surrounded with this concept um, that God exists and that God is love and knowing about sin, needing to repent of sin. And so growing up in that, I think it's always been part of my framework. But definitely when I was in my probably I think I was 18 years old, I was living overseas and I have prayed the prayer to become a Christian younger. And so I always assumed I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but also it was a faith of my parents. So when I moved away from home at 18, that's really when I claimed it as my own. Uh, I got baptized overseas. And really, I was in Switzerland. Oh, wow. You were serving in what role there? You were doing something in Switzerland. Uh, Yeah, it was there as an au pair. So I was 10 months there taking care of someone else's children. Um, And yeah, really that year, it was a very decisive year in my faith. Am I going to choose to continue to follow this Christ? Or am I going to turn my back and just do my own thing? And so it was really definitive decisions. Kendra, are you going to go to church or are you not? That's actually where the decision making was for me. And I decided, yeah, I'm going to keep going to church because I don't know if I'll ever get back to God if I don't go to church. And every week I made that choice again and again. And it just really grew, um, yeah, my understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Did you speak, like, when did they speak English in the church? No, it was a French-speaking church. Do you speak French? I spoke better French when I was there than I do now. Okay. Yeah. Do you speak German at all? Not at all. You didn't pick any German up in a Switzerland? I lived in Lausanne, so it was French-speaking community. Okay. Yeah, so I was never exposed to the Swiss German. Have you been back since you came? I haven't. Okay. Would you like to? I miss it so much. Yeah. yeah. Really? What do you like? What do you miss about Switzerland? Oh, what don't I miss about Switzerland? It honestly feels like home to me. Even though I grew up my first 18 years in Abbotsford and that very much is home and it's family and everything here feels normal. I became an an adult, I think, in Switzerland where I had to learn how to go grocery shopping and take public transit. Um, I had to learn how to speak in a new language and do my my laundry on my own in a different language with different machines and everything you do that kind of marks you as an adult. I had to self-discover it in a foreign culture. And so I think just so much of of my patterns of life were ingrained to me when I was in Switzerland. And you ate a lot of chocolate, I hope. I ate a lot of yogurt and <laughs> yeah. muesli. And muesli. Yeah, yeah girl. Yeah, that was That's my right. go-to. That's what they have for every yeah. breakfast, right? Every morning. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I ate that a lot more than chocolate. Right. So uh, you sort of grew up there. Was Did you go to there immediately? Did you do this work immediately after you finished high school or did you? Yeah. Three months after graduating, I was on a plane to Switzerland. Okay. And it was massive. I was like, I am leaving everything I know and love. Um, but yeah. How was, many? Do you have, you have siblings, right? I have two younger brothers. Okay. Yeah. Brian and Kevin. Okay. So you're the yeah. oldest in the family taking off to Switzerland. Yeah. Shocked in your mind, flying Lufthansa or whatever. Yeah, probably. Over yeah. there. And uh, you arrive, your faith grows there. You come back to, you, yeah. go to, you went to college? Yeah, I went to, I, well, two years after I graduated, I went to university. Um, I took a year and a half off when I came back home. Well, I guess a year. I was gone for a year. I took a year off. I wasn't sure what to do with my life. I was a little bit of a wreck when I came back because everything that I felt like I knew in Switzerland was completely different when I came to Canada. I didn't know how to do my laundry in Canada. Really? I, went, I went to the grocery store and I was like, oh, I don't know what cereal to buy. It was very overwhelming yeah. being back and I was just gone for a year, but I wasn't prepared for the shock of being home again. So, yeah, it's such a formative year at the year yeah. you finished college, right? For so many people, yeah. or, sorry, the year you start college and you finished high school, you, yeah. you feel at least in our culture, you feel like that's the turning point where I've got to enter adulthood now. Mm-hmm. 
And especially if you travel overseas, so much formation goes on. You realize that you can actually live on your own. And I don't know if any of that was a conscious thought process. Mm -mm. It just happened. And so then when I came back home and it didn't feel like home, I didn't really know what to do with those with those thoughts and those feelings. So I didn't have a lot of friends. A lot of my friends had moved away from high school. And so I was extremely lonely and didn't know what I should do with my life. Did you come back to Northview? Was that? I did come back to Northview. It was so hard for me because it was so big. And I felt like, how could I have grown up here for 18 years? And I come back and I feel like a total stranger where I can go somewhere for 10 months into a church and feel like these people are my family. I went to a Congolese church. And so um, they had me over for for lunch often after church service and the pastor and his family. And she would say, Kendra, our skin color doesn't matter. You're our daughter. I'm your mother. And I had never experienced that sense of people being my family that aren't my blood family before. Mm. And so coming back to Northview, knowing that this is my church family, but feeling like I don't know anyone was really tough. Yeah. We didn't have a lead pastor at that time. And so always every week I was like, dad, who's going to be preaching? And he'd say, Kendra, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, convicted all the time. But it was. Yeah, but, but who is the Holy Spirit going to? What mouth is the yeah, Spirit? That was my big question. <laughs> who's the Holy Spirit going to use this week? But the whole point my dad was trying to make is, are you soft to the word of God? Like, are you going to let the word of God speak to you this week? And mm. um, that was, again, really formative in my faith. Um, it helped me commit to being part of a church, even though I felt like I didn't belong because this is, this is God's place and he speaks here. So you went to, you went to university though. And what, yep. what did you want to be when you grew up? A dancer? No. A ballerina? I have, I have no rhythm. It would have ended terribly bad. Really? You have yeah. no rhythm? No rhythm. I am tempted to ask you to do a little dance right now. Oh, our poor listeners wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so yeah, I wanted to um, go into medicine I was very determined to be a physician, Um, but then going to Switzerland really changed my mind. I realized I actually like um, not making massively important critical decisions at every moment. And I also really enjoy being with people in the moment of their decisions. Um, And then beyond that, like helping them walk through things. And so nursing seemed to be a better fit for where my interests lie. Um, So I went to university, went in the nursing program at Trinity, and that was four years and you came out as a, as a nurse and you yeah. got a, a, a role, and this is a major portion of why I'm interested to talk mm. to you, is that you came out and started serving immediately and because you, you've worked for the last number of years in palliative yeah. care. Yeah. So I worked, my first year I was casual for medical surgical. And so I just worked full time for the year, but always waiting for the phone. Am I going to work this morning? Am I going to work tonight? Never knowing what unit I'd end up on. So I did that for a year. I really wanted to gain good medical experience. And then one day I was working and they needed break coverage on the palliative unit. And it kind of freaked me out. Can you tell me before we go, Mm -hmm. um, there are those who are listening who are like me, who, when the word palliative comes, you're like, okay, I don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah. That's a kind of nursing. Yeah. It's a great question. Palliative care. It's a big umbrella term that falls under the end of life department. So end of life, um, palliative is basically pain and symptom management. So we have patients who are at the, not necessarily the very end of their life, but they have a disease or a chronic illness that is not curable. And so that might mean you can live for 10 years, but you have a palliative disease, or it can mean that you live for 10 more minutes. 
Either way, the condition that you have is not curable. And so whatever healthcare you're going to experience from that point on is all about managing your symptoms. So we're very much about improving quality of life because we have no control over the quantity of life that you have left. So you got a position in the palliative care unit Mm -hmm. then. Yeah, and is that I a always, surprise to you? Is that I mean, that's not, I, I'm, I'm assuming that people don't come don't come out of uh, nursing school and think to themselves now. I'll, that's what I, I mean. Maternity has always yeah. been the one that I thought people would be like, yeah, that's what I want to see the beginning of yeah. life, but yeah, end of life, sitting was, with people while they die. That seems a little bit um, not not the first choice. For right. Some. I was introduced to palliative care when I was in nursing school. My grandma had pancreatic cancer. And so she was at the hospice. And I thought this would be a great place to work when I'm later on in my career. It was a little less high stress. People aren't coming in with like critical illnesses and it's not all chaos like the emergency room. But I felt like to start my career, I wanted to have a little bit more foundation, a little bit more skills solidified, be able to make those critical decision moments. Um, But when I did that break relief shift for a couple hours on the palliative unit, it was a unit that I didn't know existed. It used to be called tertiary palliative care. Now it's called complex care. And it's a unit for people with terminal cancer. So cancer is not curable. And it's a crisis unit. So it's kind of like an ICU for, for cancer patients. So it's pain and symptom management. Most of it's pain, some of it's shortness of breath. And it is so high stress, high strung. People are coming in the absolute worst condition And our job is to control their symptoms. So you're still dealing with that palliative end of life symptom control, but it's at a real high intensity level. And so that seemed to fit with my goals of of nursing care, like wanting to establish my ability to care for complex symptoms. But I absolutely loved the ability to care for the whole person. Whereas we learn in nursing school about holistic care and a person is more than physical. They also our family members and they also have emotions and they also have thoughts in their mind. And so the textbooks are all about taking care of the whole person. But the reality in a lot of the hospital wards is that you have a broken arm and you're in bed four. And that just, just such a disconnect for me. I wanted to be able to know where people were at and how they're going to manage at home and get to know their families and palliative care just values the whole person. So it really fit a lot of how I like to engage people. And it seemed to me to be a perfect package of nursing. So there's the there's the thinking about this, mm. right? Yeah, that fits my. Yeah. And then there's the first moment you sit with because I'm assuming if it's a if it's acute, like you said, the the yeah. people who are coming in are like they're dying within days. Not necessarily. We'll have people who um, are months away from. I don't know. What Is days. that the longest though? Like if they're going to be longer than that, the years, so though, they'll go will to another come, location besides yeah. the hospital. So our unit, because it's a specialty unit, I'm only speaking from a very Imagine a whole pie of being palliative care. I'm speaking from one sliver of palliative care. So our experience is quite unique on our unit. But people will come, say, on average 10 days for symptom control. It's usually enough time to get people comfortable again. Often they go home Mm. and they're able to manage at home for quite a bit of time. Or they stabilize and they can go to hospice. And then they stay at hospice. And it's only when they're really intense um, that they stay with us right to the end. So how often uh, have you, I mean, so my, my question mm-hmm. is uh, the, there's the thinking about this. And then you, then mm-hmm. you sit with someone who's dying. Yeah. W- what was that like the first time that you had to do that? Yeah. I think the first time I sat with someone dying, I very much had a movie idea in my head 
about what dying would look like. And I'm so thankful for that because I think that's the experience that every single one of my patient's family members come. If they've never experienced the death and the dying of a loved one before, we have an idea of what that's like in our head. And it's often not how it really is. And so I'm thankful I had that experience because it helps me relate a lot more to my patient's families when they think that it's supposed to be simple and peaceful. Sometimes it is. It's often not. So my first experience of someone dying wasn't simple and it wasn't peaceful. And so knowing that shock of it, I think has been very helpful for me to walk alongside people who experience that shock. Um, I'll often have patients, family members tell me like, I don't know how you do this every time. And they're like, this is so hard the first time. And I don't think it gets necessarily easier every time you see a new patient and a new family pass away um, because it's the first time for that person. It's the first time for that family. So every time I am there as a witness to this to this person dying and the family grieving, it still is a first time that this has happened. Mm. So it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty difficult. Have you uh, found that you, you get callous to it? A little bit. Yeah. Is that a good thing? It is. Yeah. There's, it's probably a balancing act. It's, it's good because then it keeps me able to go back day after day, especially when we're in a really um, acute crisis with a person and it takes weeks to manage their pain control. There has to be a way that you wake up again in the morning and go back into that environment. But too much callousness, then you stop caring. And now people are just, it's just the pain problem in room 42 instead of a person who's in pain. So I think that that balance can be tough to navigate on your own. So I'm so thankful we have a team. We work together and we rotate. Um, if something's really intense, we share that with each other. Um, yeah. What, what if you, I mean, if you're going to, Death is something that we are not, um, I mean, our culture is so uncomfortable with it beca- yeah. because of course it is, I mean, our culture doesn't view anything after death. Right. And so as a result, it's, we keep it as far out of our thinking as we can. Yeah. Right. So we, we, you know, we even dress people up when they die to mm-hmm. look like they're alive mm-hmm. so that we can pretend a little bit longer. Um, whereas in ages past, you know, you're growing up in the farm or other, other parts of the world before the industrial revolution, you just are so... You're not separated from death very much. It's very un- it would have been very common for a 10-year-old boy, for example, yeah. to have seen grandmother or grandfather die. Yeah. Well, and- even looking through old family albums, the wakes that the Mennonites used to do, we have family photos of people I don't know on kitchen tables dead with the family standing around. And that was just right. common practice. And so because we're so unaccustomed to it, mm-hmm. uh, we are really w- unprepared. Yeah we're really unprepared for it, for, yeah. for seeing it. So there's a couple of things that you said that I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about, but one, mm-hmm. one is you say it's difficult mm-hmm. and our images in our mind are peaceful because of mm-hmm. maybe the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do you mean? It's difficult. Well, how's it different than the movies? Yeah. I think dying is difficult. And I think that watching someone die is difficult. Grief is hard. So There's difficulty, I think, on two levels. There's the physical difficulty of it where your body is shutting down. And that's quite hard as your electrolytes and all of that is starting to shut down. You start sometimes seeing things and you think that there's critters on the roof. Like this can be very traumatizing to people. Um, So we have medication that can help settle those hallucinations. Not everyone will experience that, but sometimes people will. Um, so that's really distressing when you think that you're supposed to be safe and all of a sudden the room is like 
acting funny for you. So that can be really scary. And then family members don't know what to make of that situation either. So um, physically, it can be very hard. It can be very hard to lose your independence. Um, I've had a lot of um, parents, young parents on our unit, and they want to take care of their kid and they want to hold their kids and they want to play with their kids and they have absolutely no energy to read a storybook. Or if the kid sits on the bed, it's actually painful for them. Mm. And so there's the emotional pain of, I want to provide for you and yet I can't and I actually have to push you away. So that's that's extraordinarily difficult for the person who's dying. It's extraordinarily difficult for the person who's who's watching that. Have you seen a difference? I mean, you deal with people from all walks of life and so you mm. lots of different religious traditions, different, mm-hmm. you know, obviously people who are just straight secular mm-hmm. Christians, Sikh, I'm sure you deal with it. Is there, is there a difference, first of all, in faith in general? And, and I mm. mean, faith in anything, is there a difference in Christians dying mm. or is it like, I mean, you've seen a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a huge difference of people who have any faith at all um, and people who have no faith at all. People who have no faith often will have the response. This is senseless. This is pointless. Make it stop. Um, they'll be angry at nothing. They'll want justice. It's not right. They have this idea of, they talk about fairness a lot. Um, but I've had patients of many patients of different faith backgrounds who channel a lot of those emotions and a lot of those angst towards their deity. Um, so that's been really interesting for me to watch. People will say, my God owes it to me. They'll have a lot of, um, interesting thoughts about their faith, about their deity, but there still seems to be this idea of God knows best with the Christians that I've worked with. It's very interesting because I'll still have those kinds of responses. I'll have Christians who are so disillusioned by God for letting them down Mm -hmm. that either I got sick or that in my sickness, I'm hurting like this physical pain won't go away. Or I thought God was nice and kind and this is not nice or kind. So Christians I've seen have a lot of just a huge spectrum of responses, but I've seen Christians too who have such a conviction of who God is, that he is good, that he is kind, that he is loving, and that if this is happening, it's probably for my best, even though I don't get it. And that shocks me every time that happens, even though I pray to have a response like that, to see that played out in the midst of suffering. I mean, these people, they are they are the men and women of faith who I absolutely look up to. What, what would you say if you're going to give advice to, to people, mm. well, first, what, what would you say to a family who is just dealing with death? And now let me go the other way. Let, mm. What would you say to a family who believes in Jesus? Uh, and how would you prepare them for this moment? Having been there so often yourself mm. and sitting there and watching it, what kinds of things should they be fostering in their belief about God? Mm. What kinds of, like what, what would you tell them? Because everyone's headed to this. Absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the big reasons um, why I came to Immerse. I know that's not your question, but um, I've seen so many people at the end of their life question God. And I just think I want people to have a faith that when they get to the midst of suffering, get into the, the heart of the struggle, that they actually have a faith that will withstand the storms, that they know the hope of Christ, that Death isn't actually the thing to be feared. Dying without Christ is the thing to be feared. So 
I just have such yeah a heart for working beside people who are actually suffering and walking through this, wanting to bring physical comfort to them. But more than that, I want people to be at peace with God. Mm. And that starts long before the deathbed. That starts long before the cancer diagnosis. That starts long before your kids start rebelling. It's It starts right now. So what kind yeah. in, in practical terms, what kinds of theological, it's not practical perhaps, mm. but like what, what kinds of things are particularly helpful to know about God, the God of the Bible mm. that, that have, you know, a particular importance in the, at the end of life. I think knowing that at the end of life, especially knowing that God is a personal God, he is not just some grand big deity that's sitting and watching this play out. I've seen so many people feel so hopeless in the midst of their pain and suffering with cancer that I just think that's actually not, God isn't off and distant from you. He is here. He is so personally able to connect with you. He has suffered. He's the God of suffering. He gets this. And I think you won't get to that moment in the midst of your suffering if you haven't fostered that relationship beforehand. So I think being people who read the word, the more that we read the Bible and actually see that this is a God who entered into suffering. This is a God who loves us, who is not unable to relate to us. I think that that helps prepare us so that in those moments we can fall back on those scriptures as comfort and actually not have to start studying that and grabbing at that in the midst of our, of our turmoil. Yeah. That's an interesting point, right? Because Christianity is, is the only religious tradition Mm -hmm. that views God as a sufferer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's Christ is on the cross and Mm -hmm. he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And so the, the family, or the person who's dying in the, in the bed mm-hmm. cries out questions about God. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Jesus knows what that's like. Totally. And so you, you're, you might be accusing God of something or quietly frustrated with him. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I would use those words to talk about Jesus emotional life with his father at the moment, but certainly the mm-hmm. way he's speaking, they are quoting Psalm 22 sure seems to say that you have turned away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, this is, I mean, earth shattering yeah. in, in its difficulty. Yeah. And we, we as Christians are the only ones, I think, on the planet who can say that God, God has suffered like that. Yeah. Would you tell them uh, other, other things? I mean, do you ever think that people need to have a certain kind of view of God's sovereignty or providence in these moments? Or I think it's incredible. I met a lady, early 20s. Um, she was days away from dying and she was still very cognizant And so we would sit up late into the night and we would talk. She's a Christian girl. And we would talk about God and we would talk about heaven and we would talk about her dreams on life. And she wanted to study to be a teacher. And she got two courses in and then she got her cancer diagnosis. She wanted to be married and have a family and teach her kids how to scuba dive. And all those dreams are just dashed against the rocks. She's dying in a few days. And so we talked about her dreams and we cried that those wouldn't happen. And then we started talking about God. We started talking about heaven and where she's going. And we came full circle to if God is good, then what's happening to me can't be ultimately bad. And I just thought at 20 years old, with we get told that the world is our oyster when we're when we're these young adults and we just graduate from high school. And who are you gonna be when you grow up? And she's gonna be with Jesus forever. Hmm. And that was such a comfort to her. And I thought, I know no one like you. Well, we live in such a this worldly situation, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a day, I think, in the Christian church where people would have said, well, 
we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. Hmm. I certainly, th- I think it's the other way around now hmm. that we're so earthly minded. I'm not sure of that much heavenly good that yeah. we're so focused on the here and now that we don't, uh, like heaven doesn't fill our thoughts. That's actually the New Living Translation's hmm. uh, approach to Colossians 3, let heaven fill your thoughts or hmm. set your mind on things above, as it says yeah. in the ESV, where Christ is seated. I don't think we do that. No. I don't think we set our minds on things above. And I think in the moments of death and suffering or whatever, the great Christian hope is that this isn't it. Right. And most people have imbibed the idea that no, no, the secular view that no, this is it. And the great, the great victories of your life are going to happen here and now. Mm-hmm. Right. Your, your bucket list is going to be, that's the biggest thing is yeah. the now. Whereas, and when those don't happen, oh, the devastation, like it's... Right. And so it's, everything that you hoped and lived and dreamed for are just dashed beneath you. Well, you've lost something huge, right? Yeah. Whereas a Christian looks at death as, as an enemy, it is an enemy, Yeah, but it is the pathway through which mm-hmm. we actually gain. Yeah. Right. That's why Paul can say what he does. Essentially those words, right. To live as Christ, to die is, is, is gain. gain. It's, yeah. it's the pathway to receive the blessing. So in mm-hmm. Hebrews 11, you get this list of the hall of faith and all these people yeah. who, who inherited the promise, even though in the present moment yeah. they didn't see it, yeah. but they continue to the very end faithful and they inherited what was promised to them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really helpful to clarify that in this conversation, as I'm talking about death and dying, I'm talking about you as the person who's the patient, who's looking at your own death. It's very different to be at the bedside looking at someone else's death and saying, oh, I'm glad they're running towards no. that. Give, like, them a, give them advice. Give us advice yeah, on how to, how to help people die well. How to help people die well. Like, what do we do? Yeah. I mean, we're all going to face moments that when I say help people die well, like help me deal with some yeah. grief, help me deal with what kinds of things would you recommend? So for the patient or for no, the family members? For the family survived? members. I think it's okay to grieve. I think that that needs to be said so clearly. There's so many people who just say, it's okay, it's okay, you can go. And yep, I believe that it's okay. And we probably should say that more if we have a more robust understanding of the gospel and we know that the people who um, are leaving, who are dying, are Christians, we should be a lot freer to allow that to happen. Um, But I don't think that takes any of the pain away of these temporary losses um, it's excruciatingly painful to lose someone, to leave someone that you love deeply. So I think that that time of grief, it is going to be so unique for your family and within family units, it's going to be so unique for you. Uh, my experience with walking alongside people in grief are in those intense hours after someone has died. So I don't know much about the months and the years, the process of, of walking that out. But I know it's tough and I know that that journey is different for everyone. I would say stay committed to your church. Stay committed to a community of believers. Um, And I think one of the things I've heard often from patients, um, family members who come back and visit us a little bit later, they'll be laughing in one moment and they'll be crying in the next Mm -hmm. moment. And they'll think that one or both of those emotions are a betrayal. And I think that both those emotions can be absolutely legitimate in the moment. And that you will go through these swings of that was really joyful. And the next moment you'll be really sad again. And And that's okay. And in that sense, they are probably tuned into the reality of life prior to Christ's return. 
yeah. than most of us are. Probably more and acutely. That, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's life mm-hmm. is that there are great joys yeah. in this present age. Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. And there are enormous sorrows. And we will experience those simultaneously yep. sometimes. And so we feel like we live between, I mean, we use the the, the language in theology. We, we feel like we're living between the times, between mm. the ages in an overlap of mm. the great coming hope mm-hmm. where there will be no more tears mm-hmm. and the present sorrow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Kendra, it has been so good talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. There's way more we could talk to you about. Yeah, but we're thanks kind of for having me. Running out of time, but it's it's great. Your plans going forward are? I'm going to be actually working on the palliative care unit for the next month, full time for summer, and then I'll be back in mid August at Northview. Great. Yeah. Well, if you see Kendra around, you should pat her on the back. She and also chat has with a me. lot of experience living with the best people in the world. Ha. She lived in the basement <laughs> suite of the pastor of Northview. It's for true. Several years, five years, five years, five years. So yeah, if you want to know, it was a good stretch. Yeah, <laughs> was it good? It was a good, mostly good stretch. <laughs> anyway, it's great to have you. Thanks. Uh, we'll be back another time. See you later. <laughs>